Hey, my name's Caleb, and I'm the pastor at Cross of Life, and we're so thankful that you clicked on this video. We really pray that it benefits you, it grows your faith, or maybe introduces you to Jesus in a way that you've never been introduced before. But what we also want for you is to be connected to a local congregation. So if Cross of Life is your home congregation, we're glad that you make use of these resources, but make sure that this never comes in the place of coming together for worship with the body of believers. Let's be a church that values in-person gathering when so much of life is digital. And if you're somebody who's not from Mississauga, uh, get in touch with the local church in your area. It can be so easy to pick and choose, oh, I like this preacher or I like this message, but never actually invest in the place that Jesus says that he is, in his body, the church. And we encourage you to take time to put yourself into his body, in a local congregation, so that you can pray for one another, love one another, support one another, forgive one another, do all the things that the scripture talks about for one another. So we hope you're blessed by this video, and we hope that we get the chance to see you in person sometime soon. Our Advent series is called The King Shall Come. I will read today's text, which is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let him go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of the Lord. And like I said, this series that we're starting for the season of Advent is called The King Shall Come. Um, And we'll explain a little bit about what that means as we do at the beginning of most of our sermon series. Uh, First, we have to ask this question, what is Advent? What is Advent? Uh, For most of the church's history, in most of the Christian churches, uh, the Christians have been following this thing called a church year, a church year. It is an annual calendar that parallels the calendar that most of us are familiar with, 365 days across the year, but it is not at the same rate of seasons, and those seasons, of course, are different. Today is actually New Year's Day in the church year. It's the first day of the church year, and we start the new season of Advent. Now, before we talk about Advent, let's talk a little bit about that idea of a church year. Why would you have one of those? Um, First of all, it's really good for preachers, because what guys like me who get up and have to talk in front of people every week sometimes fall into is the tendency to want to talk about whatever we really want to talk about. And when you are forced by a calendar to preach about the things that God wants you to preach about week in and week out, you are forced to preach about things that you would not normally preach about. And so you, as the hearers, benefit by hearing the whole counsel of God, not just what Caleb Schultz's hobby horses are. 
Secondly, repetition is the mother of learning, some old wise Latins said. And so if you go through the calendar year after year, you get to hear the same stories year after year, and you get to, first of all, know them very well, and therefore get to understand some of the depth behind these stories. Now, at Cross of Life, we kind of do a hybrid. Um, We take some of the elements of the church year, and we definitely celebrate them like Advent or Christmas, Easter, Lent, Uh, but we don't hold on to all the things of the church here, and that's partially because we as a congregation are trying to work for this ideal of holding on to the tradition of the church and also understanding we live in our present moment and reaching to our present moment. But you can see that there is a lot of value in a thing like this. So what's Advent then? Well, Advent literally means coming, coming. And as we think about it in the context of Christmas, we might say, oh, Advent is the series, excuse me, season where we think about the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And that's true enough, but it's not the only coming we're talking about. See, the coming that Advent is focusing our minds on is not just Jesus coming at Christmas, but also Jesus coming again. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to come back. He came once to be our Savior. He will come back to bring us to be with him forever. And so Advent is this really cool series where we kind of have a duality happening, where we're focusing on the coming of Jesus at Christmas, but we're using it as a foil, as, a, as an amplification of what is going to happen, the Advent that we are actually waiting for, the second coming of Jesus. So since we're going to be talking a lot about the second coming of Jesus, I wanted to make sure we just did a quick crash course on the second coming of Jesus. Of course, you could talk about this for weeks on end, but let me give you three quick points to get your minds oriented to what we believe about the second coming of Jesus, what scripture teaches us. First of all, we know that Jesus' second coming is going to be unexpected. Jesus himself says no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, only the Father knows when that final day is going to come. So anybody who tells you they know when Jesus is going to come back, they are absolutely wrong. They cannot be right. Jesus has said as much. You often hear of these uh, cult leaders who will say that the, the end of the world is coming on this day, or Jesus is going to come back such and such. Absolutely not. Nothing that we can do or think or know will change when Jesus plans to come. It is his plan only. It will be unexpected. Second, it's going to be obvious. The Apostle Paul in Thessalonians tells us that Jesus is going to show up with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And in another place, John tells us that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every single person will know this moment when Jesus comes back. Maybe you've heard this idea that there there might be a time when Jesus comes back and it's going to be secret and some people are going to be taken, Christians are going to be taken, others are going to be left. Absolutely not. The Bible is very clear. The second coming of Jesus will be obvious. Every single person will see him on that day. And then finally, it will be eternal. When Jesus came the first time, he came temporally. Right? He came only for the 33 years that he lived, died, and rose again. But when he comes this time, it will be an eternal kingdom where we are going to live forever. And this, brothers and sisters, is the joy of the Christian faith. Like if you think that being a Christian is about being a better person or getting a little bit happier or fixing some of your addictions or problems or even getting to heaven, you are missing the point. The joy that we are waiting for, brothers and sisters, is life as it was always meant to be. Life in these bodies, but perfected in a world that has no corruption. Everything that you love about life right now amplified and everything that you hate about life erased. That is what we are waiting for. And that is what Jesus is going to bring. And before I move on from this point, can I just show you that this is where the the axis of the connection between the first coming and second coming in Advent meet? It's the fact that this, the second coming, is the exact opposite of what Jesus did the first time. 
Right? When Jesus came the first time, it was very expected. Not only had multiple prophets prophesied many different things about Jesus coming, but you could even make an argument that the prophet Daniel had predicted the exact time when Jesus was going to come. And when Jesus came, it was not obvious. Of course, it was obvious to those shepherds out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night as the angels surrounded them and shouted, but for basically everybody else, no one knew any different. And finally, like I said, it wasn't eternal. It was temporal. Jesus was here for a time, but the second coming will be so much better. So as we sing our Christmas hymns and think about Christmas coming, let's not forget that this is also about Jesus, second coming. So to focus our minds on the text for today, we're going to look at these two points. They're the two points that you're following along with on your notes sheet, if you have one. We're going to talk about how does Jesus come and then how do we receive him. And to start, before we get to how does Jesus come, we have to say, well, why on earth are we reading Palm Sunday texts in the Advent season, right? Do you think to yourself, if you know your church year, uh, Palm Sunday's not for four more months, Pastor. It seems that you've got your wires crossed. Um, no, actually, the, the historic church has read the Palm Sunday gospel text on the first Sunday of Advent for over 1,200 years. And you don't have to do something just because it's old. But there's some really good thought behind why they do this. It is because Jesus' Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem is prototypical of the coming that he will have as the king forever and ever at the end of the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text, but we're also going to see how does this show us how Jesus is going to come and how we will receive him on the last day. All right? So first, how does Jesus come? Um, the, the text that you're looking at in front of you, the Palm Sunday text, really breaks into two parts. It's the first seven verses and the last four verses. Those first seven verses show us three really interesting characteristics of Jesus that are important for us as we think about this last day when Jesus will come again. And the first is that Jesus comes omnisciently. If you don't know the word omniscient, uh, it's the word omni, which means all. And you can see science in there, right? S-C-I-E-N. That's knowledge. So all-knowingly, he knows all things. This is obvious from the text, right? And maybe it's the easiest thing to notice from the text. As it starts out, Jesus sends his two disciples on this mission to go find this cult, and he predicts everything that's going to happen, and it happens to a T. Jesus knows exactly how things are going to go for his disciples when they go find this cult. And in this, we see that our king comes omnisciently. Even as he waits for his second coming, he knows all things. And this is a great comfort for us because we understand that there are so many things that we don't know and they make us worried. They're the big things, right? We worry about the economy or about war or about our government or about cultural change or social upheaval. There are so many big things that we worry about and we don't know what's going to happen. Here's the comfort. Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what is going on. He knows exactly how it's going to play out. And he is making all things work for the good of those who love him. He sees those big things that you're terrified of. And he says, that? Oh, that'll be just fine. Trust me. But it's more than that. It's not just the big things of your life. It's the small things of your life, too. I think sometimes we have this idea that God is, he's got the big things under control, of course. But what about the little things? What about little old me? He cares about that, too. You can even see it in the way the text is written. He sends these two disciples on this mission. Why do you think he just sent two and not 12? I don't know. I'm speculating a little bit, but maybe it was because those two guys really needed to see Jesus pull this thing off. Or even think of the, the people who they met when they found the cult, who let them take this cult. 
I don't think it was like some Jedi mind trick, right? Like those of you who are Star Wars fans, you know Jedi can do this thing with the force where they like wave their hand and people will say whatever they want them to say. I don't think that's what was happening with these guys who were there by the cold. Like I think Jesus knew them and knew how they would react when two people came and said, the teacher needs your cult, which means he knows you. He knows everything about your life from start to finish, every last thing you've thought, said, or done, and everything you will think, say, or do. And he knows not just that you're going to do it, but he knows why you're going to do it. He knows you better than you know yourself. And that's really good news. Because that means he cares about the little things. He cares about the chronic pain that you feel bad telling people about because it's always there. He cares about the children you're trying to raise. He cares about the balanced budget that you're trying to have. He cares about the loneliness that you feel going through another holiday season without a special someone. He feels the same feeling that you feel after you've lost a loved one. He knows the little things of your life. His omniscience testifies to the fact that as he comes, he comes not haphazardly, not without knowledge, but knowing exactly what you go through, being there with you in it. Second, we see that Jesus comes intentionally. Intentionally. Uh, You can see it from the text that we read from 1 Kings. Jesus is not just like getting together like a group of ideas people and saying, okay, boys, here's what we got to do. We got to go into Jerusalem and it's got to be super triumphant. Give me your best ideas. Like that's not how it went, right? He knew exactly what he was going to do and he knew it because he had read it in the scripture. This was the story of Solomon. It was played out again in Jesus. Everything from the donkey to Gihon being right outside Jerusalem where they came into the city to the shouting of the crowds who both acclaimed Solomon and acclaimed Jesus. This was a a mirror image of what Solomon had done as he came in as David's son to be king. Here's Jesus, David's son, David's ultimate son who will sit on his throne forever mirroring his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Solomon as he was named king. And this is really important for us, first of all, of course, because of kind of what we just said, that God is not doing things without intention or control over your life. He doesn't just know things, he's also controlling things. He's making sure that everything works out the way he wants it to. But here's the best part. He's giving you the playbook. He's showing you that what he plans to do, what he is pulling off, comes right out of Scripture. It's not a secret. I mean, think about this. As you look back on a verse like Zechariah 9, which is also fulfilled in this Palm Sunday account, where it says, Rejoice, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How can you miss it? I mean, looking back with our 2020 hindsight, we can see, like, this is exactly what happened because it was always the plan, even hundreds of years in the past. That plan is revealed to you, too. And it should give you confidence. Like I used to have on my junior varsity football team. Uh, Where I went to high school, at least when I was going there, the varsity football team was kind of hit or miss. They were good some years, they were bad some years. But the junior varsity team was always awesome. I mean, it was like a given that you would go undefeated in your junior varsity year. In fact, if you were in one of the classes where you lost one game, you got made fun of by the other classes because the junior varsity was always good. And that's because we had a really great coach. Many thought he probably should be the varsity coach, but for better or worse, he was the junior varsity coach. And one of the things that the players loved about him is that he just stuck with the playbook. He just stuck with the plan and he worked the plan until they could stop the plan. Even so much that if we had a play that we were running that would work, like we'd get seven, eight yards on a run, whatever, he would just run the same play again and run it again and run it again. And he would say that, I'm channeling him a little bit, run it again. 
because he knew it would work. And we got so confident as an offense when we were running those plays that we would start to, I'm, I'm sad that I have to admit this to you, but we would mock the defense because we would be like, guys, this, it's going right there and you can't stop it. This is what you have, Christian. You have the playbook. You have the scripture. Every time I lined up on that offensive line to run that play, I had a little bit of apprehension. Maybe they'll figure it out this time. Maybe they'll stop us. Not with the scripture. Because there is nothing that will stop God's plan. God has laid this out from eternity past, that this is how it will happen. It was that way for Jesus' Palm Sunday entry. It was that way for his first coming. It is that way for the second coming. You can read the books of the Bible to see what Jesus says very clearly about the second coming, and you can have the confidence that it is going to work. You can laugh in the face of Satan, who tries to get you to believe that you're not going to make it, that you're not good enough, that you can't be the type of person that Jesus loves, that you won't find peace, that you won't find comfort, that you'll never get out of whatever you're struggling with. You can can laugh at those things, because they're not true. He can't stop God's playbook. Third, Jesus comes ordinarily. Ordinarily. Again, this is literally the king of the universe, God himself coming into a city where he is going to be crowned king over all creation. And though it was a big crowd and there was a lot of shouting and that sort of thing, I mean, for the most part, it was pretty ordinary looking. Just an average guy riding on a donkey. No confetti, no strobe lights, no band playing in the background, even from a divine point of view, like no miracles, no bellowing from God, from heaven. It looked pretty ordinary. And that's really good because I'm guessing most of your life is pretty ordinary. Like there are some high moments, there are some moments where you're really excited, where it really feels like, like this is what I'm living for, but I'm guessing that's very rare. A lot of it is drink yourself out of bed, get your cup of coffee, get to work or get the kids to school, slave at your job for a while, Run some errands, get home, and try to find some peace and quiet before you have to lay your head down again. I'm guessing that's most of your life. Let me know if it's not. Life is ordinary. And so Jesus comes to us ordinary. I think we get, um, we get focused on the, the miracles of the Bible, and we, we think that's the way the Christian life should be because that's what we see in the majority of the Scripture. But let's remember that the Scripture is a very narrow time in God's history. But the Gospels only cover three years of history. The epistles of Paul, only about 30 years of history. Even the Old Testament accounts, which do span long periods of history, the periods that really have all of the miracles are pretty short because God usually works in ordinary things. That doesn't mean he can't work in amazing, one fell swoop, change everything, miraculous ways, but he usually doesn't. He usually works in the mundane things of your life, the slow change over time, the things that you don't even notice. And that's a comfort. Because it means that you don't have to make any huge changes. You don't have to, to upend your life to be a follower of Jesus. No, it's, it's just about doing those little ordinary things daily, about hearing his word, letting him change you slowly, and also remembering that your Christian life is not, it doesn't need to be amazing. It can just be loving your spouse taking care of your kids, working hard at your job, finding the meaningful life like we've been talking about the last couple weeks in Ecclesiastes. Now, of course, Jesus in his final coming will not be ordinary. He will come on the clouds and every eye will see him, like I said. But until then, he comes to us in very ordinary forms even now. A little bit of bread and wine, a little bit of water poured in the head, 
The words of a fallible human stumbled over, choked on sometimes, misunderstood, ordinary. That's how Jesus chooses to work. It's not miracles. It's not amazing feats. It's the little ordinary things that God gives us. And so let's lean into those things because that's how Jesus comes. Which leads us to the second part of the text. Well, then how are we to receive him? If he is going to come like this to us today and eventually forever, how ought we to receive him? And this is really the second half of the text. If you look at verses 8 to 11, you get the reaction of the people. And of course, we know what happens. The people are shouting Hosanna, and there's palm branches and clothes, and the whole thing, it's all a big ordeal. But what what we get is a couple little insights from the gospel writers that help us understand what's going on as the crowd is yelling those things. Uh, First, from John's gospel, John tells us that as this was happening, at first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize it. So the disciples, who had been walking with Jesus for three and a half years, don't know what's going on. They have Zechariah. They have 1 Kings. No idea. They didn't get it. And I would hazard a guess that the majority of the crowd also didn't get it on that day. I mean, I'm sure there were some great, pious Old Testament believers who were reading Zechariah and who were reading 1 Kings and knew exactly what was going on on that day. And by the way, as just a little tangent, I think many of those people exist in this room today as well. They're not the people who are going to stand up and preach and say, everybody, don't you guys realize what's going on in the Old Testament and how this is fulfillment of prophecy? They're not going to do that, just like many of you wouldn't be that type of person. But they know their scriptures. They pray their psalms. They're regularly learning from God. They know what's going on. I just don't think they were the majority. (laughs) I think the majority of people there probably thought Jesus was going to be a political Messiah because that's what extra-biblical records tell us most of the Jews believed at that time. That the Messiah was going to come and he was going to overthrow the Romans. And guess what Jesus didn't do on that Palm Sunday? He didn't overthrow the Romans because that's not what he came to do. In fact, the text of Mark actually tells us that at the end of this whole thing, after Jesus goes to Jerusalem and looks in the temple, he just leaves because no one's there. Like this huge crowd that had gathered around him that were shouting his praises, all of a sudden, gone. It makes you think, like what was going on on that day? And what can we learn from those people about how we receive our king? I think you can pick three things out. As we wait for Jesus' second coming, we first ought to examine our expectations. That day they had expectations that Jesus was going to be the one who was going to overthrow the Romans. Of course, they were disappointed. What are your expectations of Jesus? Do you expect that Jesus is going to give you a happy life because you're a relatively good person? Do you believe that Jesus is just going to make things kind of work for you because you pray to him? Do you believe that Jesus is the type who doesn't really so much care about your life just as long as you believe the right things? What are your expectations? Are they biblical? I think every one of us needs to to ask ourselves that. I mean, expectations in many ways flavor exactly what we learn from the things that we experience. I know I've used this example before, but it's worth bringing up. If someone tells you you're going to stay in a five-star hotel and they take you to a room and it's actually a prison cell, well, you're going to be disappointed. But if someone tells you you're going to be staying the night in a prison cell and you come to a prison cell, well, you may not like it, but you're not exactly disappointed, right? It's exactly what you expected. Expectations flavor how we experience things. So what are our expectations of Jesus? Are you expecting amazing shows of power? Are you expecting, to make, uh, expecting him to move something substantial in your life? 
Are you expecting that he's just going to fix the money trouble or the relationship trouble or the parenting trouble or the health trouble just like that? I think you'll be disappointed. I mean, pray for it, certainly. God can and sometimes does answer those prayers. But maybe what you should be expecting is a Savior who's not coming to overthrow your biggest problems in life that you perceive, but a bigger problem that's behind all of them, which is your sin. That you're offending God by the way that you live. By the fact that you love yourself more than you love him or your neighbor. That Jesus comes to be your Savior from that, and if that's your expectation, then on that day you shout Hosanna with that same crowd and actually mean it. Which leads to our second point. We should examine our worship. On that day, the people said all the right words, didn't they? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who is going to take up the throne of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Great words, wonderful words. You maybe have sung worship songs with those words. The majority of them had no idea what they were saying. Which should make us think, when we worship, do we know what we're saying? Do you know that every word in our worship service is meticulously chosen? From the 15 to 20 hours that I spend preparing what I'm doing for you right now, to the hours that Jess picks, uh, spends picking songs, curating them over a long period of time, looking at multiple different sources of music and looking at the words carefully, to the liturgies that we've built up to make sure that every last word is specifically and purposefully chosen. Do you know what they all mean? Of course, the sermon changes every week. The music changes often. But do you know why we confess our sins every Sunday? Do you know why we use those specific words to confess our sins every Sunday? Do you know why I bless you at the end of the service? With the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. Do you know why we pray the way that we do? Why we, we have a creed in the middle of our service? Do you know why these words exist? As you sing the songs, do you think more about what the instruments are doing? Or how much you like this beat? Or do you think about the words? As you listen to my preaching, do you take notes? Do you go back and listen to it a second time? At least science tells us that if you're just listening to my sermon, you're probably going to get about 10% of it. And if that's all you want, that's fine. But I think we want to know what Christ has to say. And so however you do that, whether that's a conversation on the way home with your spouse or with your kids, whether that's writing something down while I'm talking, whether it's going back and listening to it later, whether it's studying text before the sermon or after the sermon, whatever it is, that you can hear what God has to say and be able to speak it back to him. I think also this, this should make us focus on what's really important in worship, right? Because on the one hand, we have a really great thing going here. And I could see why a whole lot of people would come to this church because the worship is really great. The music is really great. I've heard people say the preaching is pretty okay. But it's a good experience, and I, I could see why people would like to be here. But is it just preference for us? We just like the people, we like the music, we like the preaching. Or are we here for the words? Or on the opposite side, maybe we don't like some of those things. <laughs> I really wish he was a little bit different in the way he presented the word, or I wish the band would play more of these types of songs, or whatever your preference is. Do you get distracted by those things? Or do you hear the words? Do you know what they mean? As Jesus comes again, we ought to examine our worship. Hear the words that he has to say. Let them seep down deep into us and repeat them back, understanding what they are. So if you're wondering about any of those things that I've said, please ask. That's why I'm here. We want to grow together in these things so we can grow from them. Finally, as we wait for Jesus coming, we examine our commitment. Even if there were people on that day who knew exactly what was happening, 
They weren't there at the end of the day. Or Jesus and his disciples by the end, a small little band of brothers. It's pretty much part and parcel of Jesus' whole ministry. If you think through his whole ministry, this is kind of what happens. Jesus gathers a big crowd, and then he like says something that you know is the word of God, and then everyone leaves. Right? It happened with the, the crowds that he gathered with the bread that he multiplied to feed, feed over 5,000. It happened here on Palm Sunday. It happened in many other places in the scriptures. Jesus says what God has to say, and people don't like it, and they leave. Do you know by the end of Jesus' ministry, so he's died, and now he's risen, and now he's ascended into heaven. Do you know how many people are in the church at that time? 120. Jesus, the Son of God, comes and plants a church? 120 people. I'm all for growth. I would love to have a church where we can serve many hundreds of people. But sometimes I wonder if we want a bigger church at the expense of what God has to say. That we're not willing to challenge people with what God has to say. To hold them to the commitment that God expects them to have. And you can make a number of applications of this, but I would just want to speak first of all to those of you who are members of Cross of Life and then those who aren't. First, those of you who are members of Cross of Life. Be committed. Like you, can, you can have your name on a membership register, fine. But God doesn't look at that. He looks at your heart. He looks at the commitment that you have to him and to his word. And that's going to show itself in how you worship, how you Bible study, how you meet with other Christians. It's going to show in how you receive me if I come to correct or rebuke or encourage you with God's word. If this is your church home, be committed. Don't leave. Like, I mean, if you got to move, maybe. But then find a church that teaches what we teach. But don't leave. It's, it's God's word. If you don't like it, that's fine. Then, then say, I don't like God's word. But if you like God's word, stay here. Now, of course, we're not a cult. We're not going to chase you down if you leave. But I'm going to hold you to what God has to say. And for those of you who are not members of Cross of Life, first of all, understand that we are going to be immensely patient with you. And the reason we're going to be is because we want you to make an actual commitment. Um, because committing to something is something humans do and animals don't. Animals do a lot of things that humans do. They eat, they sleep, they find mates, they play with their friends. But they don't make commitments. Humans do. We want to be the most human church. And so we want you to make a human commitment. We want you to actually promise that you're going to do something that your internal psyche does not want to do. Who you are on the inside wants to stay away from people. You don't want to get deeply embedded in community because you might have to show who you are and you might learn some things about other people. And when people get together, I don't know if you've noticed, it's not always easy. But that's what Jesus calls us to. And so if you're not a member of Cross of Life, we want you to be. We also want you to be realistic about it. We want you to see what God's word has to say and commit to that. So let's summarize. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back knowing all the things that have happened, controlling all of them for your good, and bringing you out of it. So prepare to meet him. Prepare your hearts by focusing on him and not on all the other things of your life. And so then let me finish with three stories that are all the same story. <laughs> there once was a, uh, a Russian oligarch now, this was way back in the time when the Russians still had a czar who ruled over them. Uh, this Russian oligarch, he was, he was given a terminal diagnosis. And so he went to the czar and he said, um, 
can you please take care of my son when I die? So the czar who loved this man said, yes, I'll, I'll let your son uh, work in my government. But what actually happened was far better than that. When the man died, the czar took that son in as his own son and raised him as part of his family. Eventually, that young man grew up, and as many did at that time, took a position in the military, of course, a high-ranking position because his surrogate father was the czar. The problem was this young man was addicted to gambling. And so he would gamble and gamble and eventually started embezzling money from his regiment in order to pay for his gambling debts until one night he figured out that the jig was up. He had no chance. He was looking at the books. He said, I'm, I'm going to get caught. And so then rather than get caught, he said, I'm just going to end it all. So he grabbed a bottle of vodka and a gun and said, tonight's the night. And so he started drinking, but he drank a little too much and he passed out before he could pull the trigger. That night, as he's laying on the floor, the czar comes as he's checking all of his regiments and comes into that young man's tent, and he sees the books laid out on the table and sees the young man laying on the floor. And he looks at the books, and he realizes what has happened, and so he just takes a little note and puts it on the books and says, I, the czar, will pay this debt. And then he leaves. The young man woke up in the morning to find that note, to find that all the things that he had messed up, all of the money that he had spent that was not his own was forgiven. When King Solomon was ascended to David's throne, Adonijah was in trouble. Because Adonijah had presumptively thought that he was going to be the king. He was older than Solomon and also one of David's sons. But David had made this oath to Bathsheba that Solomon would be the king. Adonijah had started partying with his friends because he thought, I'm going to be king next. Until Solomon was king. Do you remember what he did in the text? He ran and took hold of the horns of the altar, the Bible tells us. You may not know what that means. You can look up a picture when you get home, what the horns of the altar look like. But the idea was that when a person took hold of the horns of the altar, what they were saying was, all I have is the mercy of God. And I pray that you would also show me mercy. And you know what happened, right? When Solomon found out that Adonijah was afraid of him and was clinging to the horns of the altar, he decided to let him go, Right? At the end of the text, he says, he will, uh, excuse me, if he, uh, if he shows himself to be worthy, he will, not, a, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, but if evil is found in him, he will die. But of course, he lets him go after this. And then finally, Jesus. Jesus is going to ascend to his throne. And everyone who has offended him or has presumptively lived against his law, who has taken advantage of the things that he has given, realizes that their life isn't worth much. Those people should die, but you know exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to save them. He's going to pay their debt. He's going to let them go. It's all the same story. We offend, the king forgives. That's your story. So let me encourage you to do one thing. Cling to the horns of the altar. Like Adonijah, hold on to God's mercy. Because if you think you're going to prepare yourself well enough for Jesus, you're kidding yourself. If you think that you can make up for the things that you have failed to do for God over your entire lifetime, you're kidding yourself. But you do have the one who is your rock, your fortress, your deliverer, your God in whom you take refuge, your shield, and the horn of your salvation. And to the extent to which you lean into him and hold on to him, no matter what you've done or failed to do, you will be saved on that day when the king comes.
Let's pray. Jesus, help us to prepare for your coming by holding on to you and your word, by pleading for your mercy for our sins, and then trusting all the promises that you have given us, that you will watch over us until that day and give us peace that goes beyond understanding. We ask these things in your name. Amen.